0: Welcome to series three of the Tim Hill podcast. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends. And what they all have in common is they have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Tim Hill podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Nate. Nate's going to tell us where and where he was born. He's going to describe what it was like, where he grew up, the schools that he went to, and the edu- education that he received. Okay, Nat, if you'd like to go.
1: All right. Hey, thanks for having me today. So you want me to start with where I, where I grew up? I'm originally from a small city just outside of Chicago, about 30 minutes. Um thirty minutes east of Chicago, a city called Gary, Indiana. Um, it is a city that has a little bit of notoriety because the Jacksons, Michael, Janet, and the rest of the family are from that same that same city. That's where I where I was born and raised and, right. and lived until I left for college at eighteen.
0: I and when was that?
1: I was born in nineteen sixty-five and I left home for the first time in nineteen eighty-three
0: okay so what it was yep. what was the, the neighborhood like where you grew up
1: interesting so um gary being um a steel town so the the biggest industry in gary was was steel and, and mills and plants so gary was a very much a blue collar town as a blue collar town where a number of african-americans migrated to um from the south because there were jobs there so it, it the time that I was born in 1965, Gary was starting to to turn in in terms of his uh racial makeup. Um, Gary has the <laughs> his theory for having, excuse me, the first African American mayor of a major US city, um, Richard uh, Hor- uh Richard Hatcher. I would say Richard Gordon Hatcher. Um so so it was very, very interesting times because it's on the backdrop of the of the things that were going on in the sixties and mm-hmm. the changes in the countries in in the seventies.
0: Yeah. So, did you see an awful lot of that? I mean, were you affected by uh, racism and stuff while you, were, while you were growing up in in your neighborhood?
1: Yeah, I think those, as a child, you, when you, when you grow up in a community that is that is racist, you you can kind of be insulated from the racism because people are trying to protect you from from things that are that are harmful. So, uh, when I when I was a small child, I lived virtually in a and in an all-black community. It was on the west side of town. And the schools I went to were essentially all black and my teachers were all black and so forth. When my parents were, I think it was a fourth grader, my parents were finally able to buy a home and we moved to the east side of town. And then I went to an integrated school and that was different. Um, we started to see what was white flight. People were, were packing up and moving away from this alleged thing. that Their property values were gonna decrease. Um, You know, there's segments of of white kids that didn't interact with black kids, black kids that didn't interact with with white kids. There were some um, Hispanic or Latin students who were trying to find essentially trying to find their way in which group that they participate or are are involved with. So it was very interesting time. So we we did. There was some some uh, racism, but there's a lot of to me. There was a lot of uh, good that was came out of this sort of situation because. I had the benefit of meeting with people that today in my community, kids don't get a chance to meet with, you know, the, while I was poor there down, just down the street were doctors and lawyers and politicians and nurses and, and teachers. So while my, neither of my parents were, were professional and none of my grandparents had even finished uh, high school, I had the benefit of being around people who looked like me, who had achieved at the highest level today. Unfortunately, when I think about that, that's not really the case when people like myself get degrees um and do fairly well we all move away from the very community that we were raised in
0: yeah i mean i guess that's a shame really um i mean we in, in england we we've we've never really experienced, experienced that type of racism that i guess are, are particularly in the south of america or the southern states um is, is mm-hmm. really rife, I guess. And and, and uh, is that still the case down there? I mean, the old rednecks and all the rest of it? I, I guess you, you don't yeah, kind of see that in the Chicago thing. area.
1: No, no I'm going to say racism is, is an interesting, interesting thing because what, what people typically associate racism with is the racism in the South. And, and I would say that the racism in the North, and I believe Dr. King once spoke about that, that the racism in Chicago was was as bad, if not worse, than the racism in the South. I think the difference is if you're in the South and I've had this experience, people don't mind telling you that you don't belong somewhere. In the North or in the Midwest where I am, people like to pretend like they're okay with you being present and they're really not. So it's a lot of subterfuge. So while you might smile in someone's face, um, the moment that you can, then you're being stabbed in the back. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's no that's not good news really, is it? I mean, it's no way, to... right? I'd to rather know who my enemies
1: are. I'd rather yeah, confront them <laughs> rather than to think you're on my side and you're behind me stabbing yeah. me.
0: Yeah, that's that. You know, and it's that's just not a nice thing for anybody to to, to be able to live with, even. So, no, absolutely not. So, you moved neighborhoods and you went to this new school. Uh, and what mm-hmm. sort of, what sort of year grades was that? How old, how old were you when you went to the to the new school?
1: Yeah, I went, I, my, my family moved as a fourth grader and and because of childcare, my mother and father enrolled my sister and I in a school that was near my grandmother's home, which was also predominantly black. In the fifth grade, I went to the, that's when I went the first time to a, to a mixed or multiracial school. The school was called Nobel. And mm-hmm. and that was very different because where I'd come from before, um, my academic record was sort of stellar. I was very good at math, I enjoyed math a great deal, but when I got to um, this new school, I was suddenly, um, what we call is tracked. I was placed in sort of more remedial type classes and couldn't get out of. It. So from <laughs> from middle school through high school to my sophomore year in high school, I, I was on track to not go to college. In fact, my high school guidance counselor told me as a into my sophomore year as i was preparing for my junior year schedule that the best i could ever hope to do was join the military and that I was you? not college material did you no sir i went to college <laughs> i got a, ma- a bachelor's degree in accounting a master's in history and theology and a law degree so yes he was completely wrong but yeah. but that is that is the track that i was on and so yeah. I, I don't want to say in fairness to him but that that is the track that the school had me on. Or so the so, school district
0: so the, had the, the school streamed you. Um Yes, sir. And and I I guess you've actually proved that you were streamed a lot lower than than you should have been. I yes, mean, sir. I, I mean that in itself is, is wrong. I mean we we had a we have a or had a different system in in the UK um, when I was growing up. Uh, um, okay. You had grammar schools, which were for 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 bright kids. And, and at the age of eleven, you took what they called the eleven plus, and if you passed okay. that, you could go to uh, the grammar school. Unfortunately, I, I failed it pretty miserably, and I ended up in um, what they call a comprehensive school. And we were also streamed, and and I was streamed in the bottom. <laughs> I've made up for it now, mind. I'm not right. <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. I've worked hard over the years. I mean. It wasn't until a few years ago that it was recognised that I'd actually had d- dyslexia when I was a kid. Wow. and and I, oh and I struggled all the way through school. Um, and, I, and I still kind of struggle a little bit with, with reading. Um, was, the words don't look the same sometimes and they come out different. But, I mean, that's dyslexia for you. Um, and yes, the, sir. And... And, and I guess over the years, there's been a lot of high-profile people uh, that mm-hmm. have come out and, and declared that they had dyslexia. Hey, fonts, for instance.
1: <laughs> yep, yep. I didn't know the. F- I think I, I'm not sure. Maybe I didn't know the funds with dyslexia, But yeah, yeah. I know it, that more people now admit to have to to or or have have had a diagnosis of it now.
0: Yeah, well, it, well, he, he did quite a lot of um, work over here. Uh, a few years ago, uh, for predominantly children recognising children that had dyslexia and um, and his experience of it. So, so he for, from a UK perspective, he was he was pretty big over here at the time. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, so academically you were kind of streamed in, in or tracked in, in in a lower group than you should have been. So I guess you was all the time at the top of that group. <laughs> <laughs> well I don't
1: know Yeah, it's interesting I don't know what what the top of the group is I, I can tell you this my very best friend in high school was was also tracked and he was essentially in special ed classes and he, he used to say he was going to be a doctor and made me promise that he was going to be the doctor uh, between the two of us and I was going to be the lawyer mm-hmm. and so the interesting thing is that, that so the, the, these two essentially misfits um <laughs> Found a way to do exactly what what the one who told us that we were going to be doctors and lawyers. His name is Doctor Underwood now, but uh, my friend Willie at the time told me I was going to be the lawyer. He was going to be the doctor, and I'm like, I don't know how we're both. (laughs) You're in essentially special ed classes, and I'm in these really low basic classes. And what I think he and I found found discovered is that we had some friends that were taking uh, accelerated placement or advanced placement courses, and we. Once we got to our schedule where we had um, an, option, an option to take classes that we wanted to take, we decided to take those classes. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time, we got a chance to sit in the class with the, with the so-called smart, smart kids and figured out, hey, um, either they're not that smart or we're smarter than people are giving us credit for. And, and that, that was essentially a great way for us to turn our lives around. That
0: sounds like the latter to me.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> so, so d- during your high school, did you did you play any sports? I mean, was, was you, you're a bit of an athlete or or, or a counselor? Yeah, play I played toe? a little <laughs>
1: bit of basketball my freshman year, and I played. Uh, I went out for football my senior year, but I had a unfortunate uh, situation with a coach my freshman year. So, you're asking about racial situations. I had a situation with. With my high school basketball coach, who um, expressed a whole bunch of epi- uh, uh, racial racial epithets and the lots of profanity at me one day at practice, um, I was raised by a father who was pretty was pretty convincing that I should not allow anyone to treat me a particular way because of the color of my skin. So when I objected to the coach's behavior, um, it ended up where I just decided that I playing basketball was
0: not that important for me. Crikey. I've, I've just noticed you're black. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so I so I didn't play, so I, I stopped playing. And in my senior year, that very same coach was also coaching football. And um, I was playing pickup basketball one day in the, in the gym, and he was like, wow, you're really physical. You had to come out and play football for me. And and I think it completely went right over his head that I was the guy three years ago that was on his freshman basketball team that he you know
0: yeah.
1: unceremoniously uh, cussed out in fit of rage or whatever. So <laughs> but that was that was it. That was the end of sports for me.
0: All right, you didn't do it in college or in college or university.
1: When I went to college, um, the school that I attended, Butler University, basketball team was not that great. My best, my my roommate, I'm sorry, my, my roommate, my freshman year was the starting point guard. I would play pickup with him, and he encouraged me once. He said, "Man, you come on out, and you could I'm sure you could probably walk walk on the team." But honestly, Mister, I wasn't. I hadn't figured, I hadn't mastered my academic yet. So trying to throw in an, a sport yeah. and also be a student would have been a would have been a complete catastrophe so (laughs) just figured my best bet is to see if I can't figure out how to you know get something better than C's and stay off academic probation
0: yeah so so let's let's look at your university career then so so you left high school Mm -hmm. and and you went off to to college Uh, I guess college university is the same thing in America yes sir yeah yeah so so your first year, your freshman year, what um, subjects did you s- start with?
1: <laughs> well, I, I started out as, a, as an accounting major. I finished as an accounting major. Um, <clears throat> so I took, I think I took calculus, like a five-hour calculus my freshman year. I had a, a an English uh, or literature course. I had a class on, it's called Change of Tradition, sort of a his, history-based course. I, had, I think I had Intro to Accounting. and maybe intro to micro, intro to economics. So I think those might've been like the five courses that I had my freshman year. Um, I was completely overwhelmed. I was on academic probation by the time my first semester ended. Um, I was not, I was not at all prepared to be, um, to be a college student. And I certainly wasn't prepared to do something as rigorous as work on a degree in accounting. It was, it was very tough in the beginning.
0: Mm. So Obviously, you managed to overcome that, and, and and I guess that was just down to your hard work that, that managed to get you through that.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, certainly my hard work, I would say um, the, the recognition that there were people who believed in me and expected more of me. So when I mentioned, you know, I'm a guy from Gary, Indiana, and I, you know, my high school guidance counselor says the best you can hope to do is join the military. One of the things that that you think of is I don't want those people to be right about me. Like there are some people who believe in me, and I want to make them. I want to make them proud, and I want them to know they were right. And there are people who don't believe in me or didn't believe in me, and I want to prove to them to them that they were wrong. I mean, I desperately want to prove to them that they were wrong. And I think sometimes uh, the energy from from those two things you know, pull you or push you forward. and So I'd like to say it was just me, but I think some of it is just the power and influence of people that you, you don't want to let be right. And there, there's the power and influence of people that you love and adore and who love and adore you and you want to make them
0: proud. Absolutely. So, so that pretty much, I mean, that, that gave you the, the, the kick up the pants to, to, to crack down and get on with the job. And so how long did you actually do at college? I'm sorry. How long did you do at college to get your degree?
1: Yeah, I I was there. uh, I was there five years, but I would have finished in four. My my family had uh, some financial difficulties. And so my going into my second semester, my senior year, I dropped out of school, took a job and uh, went home to help my family so that we didn't we didn't lose our home. And then the following semester, when my parents got back on their feet, that fall I went back to college and finished.
0: That that is special. I mean, you to do that for your parents. Uh, I guess they were funding you anyway, but but. Um...
1: Well, no. So I had a little sister, and my sister started school in the in the fall of 1986. I was scheduled to graduate in May of 1987. So in December, my mom calls and she says that my father lost his job and they were helping my sister. I was working full time by then. I was working at a university's print shop. I was doing all kind of odd jobs trying to make sure I could pay my mom away and not ask my parents for anything. Um, but my, they were helping my sister. And, and when my mom called and said, uh, you know, they didn't know, she didn't know what they were going to do. I, interestingly enough, was applying for jobs because I was scheduled to graduate in May. Mm. And one of the jobs I applied for also had an opportunity to work as an intern. But that was to be an intern come that following January. And I wasn't interested. At the time, I was like, I'm not interested in being an intern. I'm graduating in May. I'm ready to get out of here. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, well, after after that, I, just, I called him back and said, is that internship position still available? I'll take it. And so I took that position. And fortunately, there was a an office that was not far from my home. So I took that position, moved back home, and helped my family out so that my sister could stay in school. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: my, my family's financial situation didn't get any worse.
0: That's good. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. So and I, and I guess that internship kind of would have given you a little bit more experience uh, to get your degree at the end. Did, did, yeah, was that, that was a. Uh, I worked
1: for the for, the, no, I was I worked for the federal government. So and it was an accounting related position. So yeah, it, it was helpful. And when I was done with with college, I didn't have to look for a job. They already offered me a job. So unlike my peers, when they finished, there was no jobs. I didn't need to do job searching and interviews. I had a I had a position. So I just got my degree and enrolled right onto the position that I had. So yeah, that, that part of it worked out fine.
0: Oh, that's cracking. So. You actually worked for the government after when you when you left university then?
1: I, I did, I did.
0: Yeah. So which part of the government? The Treasury. Treasury? Mm-hmm. Did uh... so tell me about working at the Treasury. What what was your role in the Treasury?
1: Yeah, I was a revenue agent, so my job was to Basically, uh, audit at first. It was uh, small businesses primarily, um, and uh, I did a little bit of recruiting for the treasury at the time. Um, I wrote while I was there the first ever uh, co-op man co yeah the yeah co-op um, intern manual. So I wrote a manual on how students who wanted to be interns um, should should everything from the application process to all the things that you should be doing. While you're working as an intern, as a co-op, and um, but I initially had a very good time. I had a chance to travel and help recruit other other students of color. At the end, it wasn't it wasn't such a great ending. Um, I was ready to go to law school, so there was a little bit of turbulence around that. But um, it worked out. It worked out fine. It worked out fine. And I think, if, in retrospect, sir, if I if I had known who I am today. Differently, I probably wouldn't have gotten a degree in accounting. I only picked accounting because my mother was an accounts <laughs> receivable clerk, and I could. When I got to college, I couldn't. They said, "Well, what do you want to major in?" And I'm like, "I don't, like, I don't know, my, but what would I do? My mother is accounts receivable clerk. She's like the most respected person that I know. So I'll try accounting, and that's really how it ended up in <laughs> <as an> this
0: account." <laughs> so, so how long were you in the treasury for?
1: Um, I was there f- from would have been 1987 through 1990. I started law school in, in August of 1990, so just a little over three, over three plus years.
0: All right. So, it, I guess in that time, you, you earned enough money to save up to be able to go to university or to law school. Is that how? Well, it was that was work? the
1: plan. And the, other, the other plan was that I was going to stay with the Treasury. I was going to stay there and work. Um, I was gonna stay there and and go to law school part time and continue to work full time but that but my relationship there um with my particular my manager became untenable, and I just decided the best thing for me to do was just to leave altogether and just go back to school without without the um, without working so that 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 was unexpected I wasn't financially prepared for that, but you know mm-hmm. you do what you do
0: yeah. Absolutely, so you started at law school uh and mm-hmm. so that's kind of I guess now full-time because you'd left the treasury
1: well no, so the law school had a had a, a um, requirement that if you started as a law if you started as a part-time law student you had to do your first two years as a part-time student, so your first year was broken up into two years, so they would not allow me to change it. so what I ended up doing was then working on my master's degree simultaneously. Oh, so nice. I, so while half the day i do law school uh, courses, and the other part of the day I'd be in my graduate program.
0: All right. So, so what did you do um, your master's in?
1: My master's is in, uh, it's a, the degree is Master's of Arts in Liberal Studies. My concentration was history and theology, or my concentrations are history and theology.
0: Mm-hmm. So what history were you looking at?
1: Um, so the class was very general. So it was a lot of world, mostly world history. Um, and then the theology was mostly the, not a particular faith, but just the, the, um, theological experience of people all over the world. So, you know, you look at Christianity, you look at Islam, Judaism, you look at um, Buddhism, et cetera. So you look at a number of different things. And what I was mostly compelled by was the similarities. That might allow people historically, if we had figured it out, how to see eye to eye more than spending our time being um, separated because of because of a faith or a mm. religious belief, or et cetera.
0: Yeah, I, I guess if if you kind of tie um, religion up with history, most conflicts start because of uh, religion. <laughs> We, right, we, right. We, we have a prime example of that in Northern Ireland with the, the Catholics and the Protestants, uh, mm-hmm. and we had a 30-year conflict in, in Northern Ireland, and that hasn't really gone away. All that's happened is that they, they're they still needling each other, they're still doing a bit of the, uh, bit of terrorism, that, because it's, it, they, they re-term it criminal activity. They don't need the military in there to aid the civil power, which is why... That particular conflict for, for us has kind of died down for for our military, and it's now just the police that look after Northern Ireland. Hmm. So, yeah, that's my take on.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I I saw the movie Belfast recently. You just made me think about that. But, All right, I've but not um, seen it yet. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd be interesting to hear your take on it after you after you've seen it. But I did I did see it. Yeah.
0: I'd say I I had a pretty grim time in Northern Ireland. I I did uh, a few tours out there. (laughs) Spent a lot of my life, nearly lost my life a few times out there as well. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty grim place back in the 70s, I can tell you.
1: Um,
0: Wow, okay. Yeah. So, wandering around Belfast, having bricks thrown at you and and being shot at uh, (laughs) nearly every other day. Yeah. Kept you on the toes, as I say. <laughs> it,
1: it sounds like the 50s and 60s in America and being black, but it sounds a little bit like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so you're doing your master's um, and you're doing the law degree and you had to do your mm-hmm. first year over two years. So how did you progress on then? Because I guess it's what, a four, five year course?
1: So it's, it's supposed to end up being five years, but I actually finished in four and a half. So um, that was. That was, that was good. I was, I was ready to go. Um, it, it was, again, it was challenging. I, I was not at all prepared for law school. Um, my, again, my best friend, Dr. Underwood, uh, came home one day. I was, while I was working for the treasury, I bought a new car and I remember picking him up from the bus station and he, he was on his way to medical school and he said, why did not you buy this new car? But the language he used was a little little more salty than the language I'm using <laughs> with you. <laughs> and he proceeded to tell me what a dummy I was and how I, I, I was messing up the plan and I was never going to get to where I was supposed to get to and buying a car was just another albatross I was putting around my neck that was going to delay me from doing what I was supposed to do. And and so he let me have it and he was right. He was right. And, and so, um, the following year I applied and, um, but I wasn't prepared. I mean, my, my, uh, LSAT scores weren't, weren't great. I wasn't prepared for, for, for law school. Um, but again, like just the same way, sort of in, in undergrad, I, once I got there, and people in the community knew that I was in law school. And when you when people would introduce you, they say, hey, this is Nate, he's a law student. And you're like, okay. <laughs> or we got this law student from Gary you want to, to introduce you to. And so there's so much of that that you're like, I, like I wanted to quit. After my first semester <laughs> in law school, I said, I don't want to do this. Like, I, don't, I just don't want to be a lawyer. And I don't know if I said that because it was hard and I didn't want to do the work or if, it was, if I just didn't really want to do it. But either way, Quitting was not an option. Yeah. Because I understood there were so many people who were now looking at me, and the last thing I could do was go home and say, "Well, I didn't do it," because they wouldn't have cared why. They wouldn't have cared what reason. No. All they would have said was that yeah. you quit. Yeah, you're a loser. So, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> So I, so I figured it out, and and I, I stuck to it. I ended up getting married my third year of law school. Um, so in '93, I got married. And then I finished in December of
0: 94. All right. So uh, did your new wife help you out at all with your your studies? Where did you meet her?
1: I met her at school. So here's an interesting story. I was leading a protest of students at the university in the fall of 92. There was a racial incident where some, when David Duke was running for president of the United States, there was a, a group of students that put a, David Duke poster on a young man's and African-American male's door and put flammable liquid underneath the, on the floor and on the door and set the door and on the floor on fire. And the way that the dorm rooms were, there were bars because he lived on the, in the basement. So he could not get out while this fire was raging. And so when they finally put the fly, fire, fire out, some of the undergraduate students came over to the place where I studied and said, told me what happened and asked me what they should do. <laughs> said they were seeking counsel from me <laughs> about what to do. And so Boy, you were we had, so had this much long discussion that huh? night about what to do. And the next day we got almost all of the students, black, white, you know, Catholic, Protestant, Christian, Jewish, et cetera, about the, almost 3000 students to march on campus. And we closed the university and made the university confront who it was. And so from that, they decided that they need to do a better job of um, their, their hiring practices need to change and so forth. So they hired a, for the very first time, a black admissions counselor. And that happened to be my wife. All right. <laughs> so she, I didn't know her at the time. She ends up being my wife. She, they hired this woman and i we meet and we have a date and we've not been apart since. So. All
0: right. That's a nice story.
1: <laughs> yeah, so whenever she tells me I talk too much, I say, hey, remember how you got here.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So uh, so you finally graduated. Um, what did you do after that? Did you manage to get into a law practice? Did you set your own up or what?
1: Yeah, so in the two summers, during my last two summers in law school, I had the great fortune of working for a publishing company um McGraw Hill School Publishing. And what I consider to be great about it is that I worked for this the school it's called SRA was so it was like the school division. And I got a chance to see uh, educational textbooks and books for um, for early for early learning and for child development. Well, in when I graduated, my wife was then pregnant. So what I How what we that what we decided to do then <laughs> is take some of the things I learned in those textbooks and apply it for the life of our then unborn child. So no, I didn't go work for a law firm. The, um, I didn't, I was pretty certain I didn't want to practice law. Remember I said, I I didn't think I wanted to do it, but I needed to finish it. So I was looking for jobs, actually working at universities and as administrator, I interviewed for several positions anywhere from like directors of stuff to vice presidents of state university. So I ended up taking a job at Purdue University and in their affirmative action, their, their personal, personal relations department, primarily working on um, writing policies around affirmative action and EEOC and uh, dis, uh, the Americans with Disability Act and those kind of things. So that's where I where I landed. But what was surprised me the most important part was that my experiences at those, during those two summers and the material that I learned while I was in the publishing industry.
0: Mm. So you didn't actually take the bar exam? Am I right?
1: I didn't. I took my multi-state professional ethics responsibility exam and then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to take the bar because I'm not going to practice law. I'm not even going to set myself up to do it because I have no interest Have no interest in doing it. So I, I've never set, set for the
0: Okay. So, so your experience in the print industry then uh, effectively got you into this Mm -hmm. new role. Um, so you're writing policy documents and all the rest of it for just for that university or did it? Yes, sir. I I did. Yeah. Did it go further than that or is it just for the university uh, and for their standard operating procedures, I guess?
1: Yeah, I did that for, I worked at the university for about 18 months. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to do something on my own that I didn't want to work for somebody else anymore. I kind of had, I had my feel of that. And so I, um, started my own financial planning practice and I've been doing, I started that actually yesterday was the 25th anniversary of the first day I was in business with myself. I started February 1st, 1997.
0: Wow that's impressive so, so so from your college days uh, and, and and being an accountant <laughs> mm-hmm. one <laughs> to to do, to working for the treasury and then doing a law degree you end up mm-hmm. setting your own business up as a, a as a financial planner
1: financial visor. advisor yes sir yep.
0: and you've been doing it for 25 years for
1: 25 years yeah, I took a um, a personality assessment, a couple of different assessments, a career assessment, and what it, all of them continued to come back and say, "Well, hey, you've got this, you've got this accounting degree, so that makes sense for finance. You've got a law degree, and that makes sense as well because you can look at estate, help people with estate planning and those kind of things. And Then they're like, well, but this other stuff you have, this stuff around your humanity, your theological perspective, your Perspective of the the world and the planet, like that part is good too. And so, put all those things together, you'll be kind of unique. Now, not many people in this in our industry have that kind of background. And so, it turned out that 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 they were right. And uh, I've been doing that for twenty five years, and now working on my um, the next chapter of my life.
0: Hmm. We'll do that in a minute. But so, you've set your own business up. And mm-hmm. is it just you? Did you have a? Did you, did you have an office? Did you have any real Absolutely. problems along the way? <laughs> yeah, lots of problems. <laughs> lots of problems. <laughs> um,
1: when I when I started, I started with a larger firm. Um, so, and then there was an office that I would obviously go to, and I had to pay rent for the office and those kind of things. And here is my problem. I didn't have a clue about what I was doing. So yet again, right, I'm in a situation where I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not prepared. If, yes, I have a law degree. Yes, I have an accounting degree. Yes, I have a master's degree. But I don't know anything really about how to sell. I mean, this industry, as, much, as bright as you could be, you still have to convince people that they should trust you to take care of their money. Right. People care. Yeah, as much about their money many times than they do about anything else, and then I'm also still living in the same state with the kind of folks who put me in a system and tracked me, told me the best <laughs> I could hope to do was right join the military, set a young man on fire, try to set him on fire in his room, mm. and I didn't even mention the things that happened while I was in undergrad. So I'm still now I'm still in that in that environment, and and now I have to try to convince. People who primarily don't look like me—that they should allow me the privilege of helping them to manage their money and plan their retirement, and plan for their kids' education, and those kind of things. So that—that was—that was quite the experience.
0: I guess that was a massive, massive hill to climb.
1: <laughs> that, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But, uh, I went places that I don't think I know. My peers didn't go. I mean, I would, I would leave the home. Sometimes you know early morning, maybe like three o'clock in the morning, Chicago's about three hours from here, and I would drive to Chicago and meet with prospective clients who who were middle middle income upper income african American families, spend all the day in Chicago to eight or nine o'clock, drive back home, try to get back in time to see my son before he went to bed mm-hmm. but um, that was, you know, I'd go to Ohio and do the same thing, all over the state of Indiana, Michigan. I went, I went places that my peers didn't have to go because I was trying to build a business and take care of my family.
0: So how did you get your clients to start with? Uh, how did you advertise uh, your product? Yeah, your, at your
1: first, yeah at first, one of the things I was able to do, because I was an accountant and because I had experience with, with taxes, one of the first things I did was I said, well, um, I'll review your tax return in right as for free. Let me review your tax returns for free. And because, because of what I understood that I could learn so much from their tax return that either their, their accountant was never telling them and their financial advisor didn't know that suddenly it would, it would give me a leg up, uh, in their perception of me because I could tell them stuff. Nobody else would tell them. So that was, Helpful. The other part that was helpful is that, remember some of the people that I didn't want to let down by quitting. Yeah. But when they found out that I was in the when I was in financial planning, they were like, "Well, well, c- come tell us what you're doing." And so when I would go tell them what I was doing, they would then tell other people what I was doing. So a lot of it was just just word of mouth. I had an opportunity once to be in front of a group of um, African American professionals who so liked me. That I, I want to say there were probably 50 of them. I'm going to say 12 to 15 of them became clients of mine, and then they would tell people, because I'm not from yeah. Indianapolis originally, where I live now, and they would just tell people about me. So a lot of it was just word of mouth and, and treating people respectfully, and they and they would just sing my praises, and that's how my business grew.
0: Brilliant. That is a tremendous story to, to go from <laughs> being told that, the best you can do is get in the military to being where you are now. You have your own business. Do you employ people now?
1: Uh, to- I do I do not currently employ anyone. I've um, I've decided some years ago um, because of the way I wanted my lifestyle to be that I didn't want to be responsible for someone else, especially we've had so many ups and downs with the market. Yeah. Um, I just didn't want to have that, that responsibility. The other part of it is I, I'm – I am – hugely, I know a lot of parents are active in their children's life. I'm just hugely active in my son's life. So as an example, um, when my son was 16, he left the country and moved to Brazil to play soccer. And I wanted to be able to pick up and go and spend time with him somewhere. So if that meant if I wasn't working and making money, I was okay. Mm. But if I had a staff of people that I'd been responsible for, I would have probably have to been there with the staff of people. And that just there was nothing more important to me than spending time with my son or seeing him grow up and his dreams come true. So, I, I, I've not had any employees.
0: Okay, so I mean that—that's obviously uh, you're fairly flexible in the way that you work. Do, do you do a lot of um, remote working? Uh, do do do, do you?
1: Yeah, I, I guess you work now from home. I'm from, especially during the pandemic, I'm I'm working from home now. Um, I was, I, I like to think I was almost one of the first remote one of the first remote professionals because I used to say to the guys all the time, why are we in the office? This is the dumbest thing in the world. I could just get up and walk from my bedroom and be much more productive. And besides, I got a child, smile, child, and my wife's in grad school. This is easier for me. I am my son's child care provider, his playmate, and his teacher. I can do all of those things if I don't have to go to the office. So. Yeah, I've enjoyed the flexibility of of, of uh, being my own boss, so to speak.
0: Fantastic. So uh, that brings us right up to date. So, what's the future holding for Nate? Um. So the last, the last
1: since 2014, I published my first book in 2014 at the behest of my son. I, I've I've mentioned him a couple of times. I have a son who is now 26, but as a in 2014. Uh, he was 18 and he had just returned from Brazil where he was, where he was playing soccer. And I'd written him letters as a child. And one of the reasons I wrote him letters is I, I didn't have a really good relationship with my father growing up. And I wanted to make sure that if I messed it up, he had a record of a time when his dad actually did do the right things or did actually demonstrate that he loved him. Well, my son decided that we should take those letters and publish them. And so we did. And, um, that sort of changed the trajectory of a lot of things for me. I unintended. Um, I wrote a book, um, found out that I was the first father since 1737 to write letters to his son that were published. The first guy is named Lord Chesterfield. And he, and he, and he, right, he's, I tell people he was a lord and you can, I'm not, but you feel free to bow and curtsy. But so there's two people <laughs> in the history of the world <laughs> who've written letters to their child over the span of their life. Lifespan, lifetime, and that that one guy's Lord Chesterfield, another guy's the guy you're on the call with today, and that sort of changed the pace, the, the trajectory. I would say a little bit of my life, and now I find myself writing as much as I do anything, um, speaking places more than I ever thought I would before, and sharing insight on how to get a child prepared for life, for college, how to be a great citizen, etc.
0: Wow. Did did you know about Lord Chesterfield before you I mean before you started writing letters? I had to no,
1: boy. I had no clue. And then so someone says, you know, this reminds me a little bit about the like the book from Lord Chesterfield. And I was like, who is Lord Chesterfield? And then I was like, oh, I got it. He wrote this this book and kind of a manhood guide to to his son, Philip. And I'm like, okay. All right. And that's really what I wrote. I wrote a two-year-old. I started writing a two-year-old hmm. letters. And I continue to write them to this day. But the letters in the book are letters I wrote for him through, some of them through age 2 to 16.
0: And he kept them all?
1: He kept them all. Well, most of them, because when he was small, (laughs) I used to mail them on postcards and greeting cards, and not Mm. all of those were kept. He threw them in toy chests and stuff like that. (laughs) So we did find some of them. When he got old enough, I would email them. Yeah. And keep some of them for myself. I just thought, well, I should probably hold on to them. One day I'll put them in a binder and I'll give them to him. And the one day came sooner than I expected. When he, his junior year of high school, he decided uh, that he did not want to return for a senior year. And because of the, remember I said, when I worked for the publishing company, I learned all of these things about early child development. So because of the things that we learned, he was done with high school by his 16th birthday. He, he had met all this, the high school equivalent standards. He tested in the top 1%. He had 33 college credits. He spoke four languages fluently. Like He was an extraordinary kid. Like compared to me, he, was, he wouldn't even talk to me if we were in high school. I would, <laughs> I would have been the guy who wasn't good enough to do anything to go to the military. And he would have been the guy that somebody would say he's most likely to be president. Um, but he said, I don't want to do that. I want to chase my dream of playing professional uh, football. And so he wanted to leave the country. And um, so I found myself giving him those letters in a binder long before I expected to. I gave him to him at 16.
0: Oh, so so your son left high school at 16 and mm-hmm. then cleared off to, to Brazil to play football?
1: Went to Brazil. Yeah.
0: Did, did, he went to I Brazil. Mean, okay. How did that happen?
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> we were. Well, well, we went out to we went out to Las Vegas um, for Christmas of 2011, and we weren't having an exceptional time. None of none of us gamble or anything. So we decided to rent a car. We drove out to the Grand Canyon, and while he and I were at the Grand Canyon, we both read this book, The Alchemist, by by the writer Paulo Coelho, and. And 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 if you if you haven't and if your listeners haven't read it like it's one I I would highly encourage people to read it. It's a great book. It's a short read. But the idea behind the book is this: this young man named Santiago who's chasing his legend or trying to get to his pyramid, which is essentially how does he get to his best life? And so my son read and I read it, and he said, you know, that I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to get to my best life. This is what you've been talking about. So here we are standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and he says. I'm ready. And I said, Yeah, like, isn't it great here? And I'm talking about how great it is to be on the edge and how much life there is on the edge and looking down at this great canyon and all that stuff. And he's talking about not going back to high school. He says, Yeah. And next year, I'm not like, after I finish the second semester, I'm done with high school. I need to get out of here. I was like, What? Huh? (laughs) He said, you always told me to dream and all this stuff. And, And so I'm like, Okay. And my wife's behind us yelling at us to get off the edge of the canyon. And <laughs> I'm thinking maybe I should jump because I'm now committed to letting her son <laughs> leave the country without her permission. Crazy. So I, I was reading a second book called The 4-Hour Work Week by Timothy Ferris. And, and so in that in the book, one of the first things Mr. Ferris suggested we do is you hire a virtual assistant and just try it out. Give it some, someone a task and see what happens. And I hired a virtual assistant and and his name is Nathan. He lives in Bangalore, and I and I asked him to help me find a way to get my son out of the country to play soccer. In about a month or so, us working together, he found eleven clubs across the globe who who offered him a chance to come in for a trial. And uh, Brazil was his favorite. Um, most of the soccer players he was mm. in love with were Brazilian, and so we reached out to one of the people that was um, associated with the tryouts. His name is Miguel de Lima, and Mr. de Lima invited us over to Brazil and to set up tryouts, and nine went over and tried out and tried it for a few clubs and found a couple clubs that were interested and said, I'm good, I'm staying. This is what I want to do. Mm.
0: Um, so, before he left, he taught himself Portuguese. All right, so I, I guess he spoke Spanish beforehand spoke Spanish so Spanish, so Portuguese English, is, Spanish, is...
1: Portuguese, Catalan, some French and some German
0: that's really unusual for American to learn foreign languages exactly mm.
1: exactly
0: it's, especially yeah, so... especially <laughs> European languages um, I, I can understand learning uh, Spanish because I, I guess there's a, a huge histo uh, Spanish population in America. But yes.
1: um, he attended an international school and that was one of that was his first language that he learned was Spanish. Hmm. And then there was French. Um, but then one of he had Spanish teachers that were also from Catalan. So that I don't understand it, but there's a there's a very distinctive yeah. difference between Spanish and
0: um, Yeah I mean I mean the Catalan area in in, in Spain is in the north. Um okay. uh, So of the, the Basque region. And they they want to be separate from Spain, basically. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a bit like Scotland, isn't it? <laughs> Scotland yeah, wants so, to be different so. from us. <laughs> they want to be independent. That's, that's, <laughs> yep, oh, right. so that's what happened. So did he? Did he realise his dream? Is he still um, a professional football player?
1: No, he he played for a. Uh, one of the top clubs in Brazil that was associated with Manchester United. Um, he got a concussion. And he was there about 16 months off and on. Um, he had trials in Germany. So we went to Germany, mm-hmm. went to Nuremberg for trials. He was going to be there a month. <laughs> um,
0: had yeah. an opportunity D- to go
1: to the UK. D- different for, trials
0: Different trials. Oh yeah, not Nuremberg (laughs)
1: trials. Yeah, for tryouts, Yeah, (laughs) we did. We did go to the museum. That was interesting. I was really interested in it. Was very
0: interesting. Uh, The the. Um, But he got a concussion. The palace uh, of justice didn't get
1: any medical. Didn't get medical treatment. They didn't. So we brought him home, and he said he had had enough. He said Mm -hmm. it was. It it wasn't what he thought it was going to be, but it was an experience that. Was unforgettable and it sort of uh, set him on a path to be an engineer.
0: All right, so so what did he do? Go back to college to learn. He engineering? came home.
1: Mhm. Came home in October of. He left in June of 2012. He came home in October of 2013. He uh, took his SAT test and started applying to colleges, and he got accepted to 27 of America's top universities and picked one and went off to school and four years later finished his undergrad degree and and then um, applied was applying for PhD programs as a senior in in college and got seven PhD offers and he's now at Carnegie Mellon which is I don't know top three top three top five uh, engineering schools perhaps in the world so that's where he's now working on his
0: PhD okay (laughs) so from sort of very, very sort of humble beginnings, you've kind of done well.
1: Yeah, I've done okay, I think. Yes. Yeah. I've, yeah. Done, I've done i I've done okay. Still working at it, but I've done
0: Well okay. <laughs> done we all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, Nate, that has been a fascinating story. I mean that's that's you are an inspiration really. Well, thank you, sir. You and you are
1: you're you're one doing the show and allowing us an opportunity to share. So I appreciate you greatly.
0: Well, my my my, my ambition. I don't want to. I'm not interested in making any money out of what I do. I just want to tell people stories. I want to find ordinary people that have got extraordinary stories uh, for them to leave a legacy for not only their children but your grandchildren, great grandchildren and for generations to come. Because the reason I got into this whole thing uh, was basically through lockdown. I'd been working on Ancestry, and I found a grandfather of mine, a great-grandfather, who lived in Portsmouth. He was the chief stoker in the Navy. And and it got me to thinking, I'd love to sit down and have a chat and to learn his story. Um, That wasn't to be. And I thought, well... Well, what's going to happen when I go? So I started um, started a podcast. I did twenty four half an hour episodes of my life. So, if if you're suffering from insomnia and you need something to make you go <laughs> sleep, <laughs> um, well, I won't I
1: won't have to suffer from insomnia. I'll definitely listen to them. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So so that's how I got, how I got into it, and and so I've run out of my life and and started doing other people and um
1: no i think it's extraordinary your 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 point is well well taken i don't like i, I have a grandmother well, i had a grandmother who lived to be just short of 103 yeah and so she was born in 1908 she passed in 2011 and i've all oft, i've often wished that we had this kind of technology available because i would have so loved to have heard her tell me yeah those stories. I mean, she, her grandparents were slaves and her mother and father were sharecroppers and she lived through, you know, she lived through that Jim Crow era. She lived all the way through seeing America's first black president. And there's so much history there. And my fan, and and I know people like my grandson, my grandson, her grandson, Mm -hmm. me and her great grandson, my son and others would have learned so much, but. We don't have. Yeah. We didn't capture a story. So I, 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 really respect what you're doing. I think it's, yeah. it's vitally important.
0: Anyway, Dave, I, I, I can only thank you so much uh, for, for sharing your story.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and, and
0: blessings to you. No problem at all. Thanks for listening, and look forward to the next one.